0: Everybody. How are we doing today? Good, good. Are we full of donuts and coffee? Oh, yeah. All right, so we're going to listen really good today. Good. Hey, uh, if this is your very first time with us, I'm glad you're here. My name is Joe. I get to be the lead pastor here, and I hope you'll come back. And, and I hope that uh, this is exactly the kind of church you're looking for, and that we get to know each other, and, and you can get plugged in and grow here. That's what we would love to see, and I hope that happens for you. Um, hey, I also want to thank Taylor Duke for preaching last week. Didn't he do a good job last week? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Taylor continued our series, uh, "Rescued," through the book of Exodus, and he preached on what is uh, perhaps you know one of the most famous chapters of the whole Bible. And why was it so? Why is that chapter of the Bible so famous? That chapter, Exodus 20, contains the 10 commandments, the 10 words, the famous words that God spoke, and they're some of the most known words in all of the Bible. Those words uh, are God's uh, bedrock of his covenant. This is where he's laying down the foundation. I'm defining the relationship with the Israelites. And what did he say? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol and bow down to it. You will not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, You shall keep the Sabbath day holy, honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, and you shall not covet. This is what God wanted out of his relationship. These were the defining boundaries, if you will, that the I joked about, the DTR, they're defining what it is. And God was very clear, very certain about uh, the nature of this relationship and the outcome of this relationship. If you go back one chapter to Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, what did God say? He says, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant. Okay, so it's a conditional matter. If you do this thing, then here's what's gonna happen. Out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's how God saw it. That's how he defined the relationship. That's what this covenant is all about. It defined the relationship that the Israelites were going to have with God. But at the same time, what this covenant did is it helped define the relationship that the Israelites were going to have with one another. So there are vertical components and there's horizontal components, how we're going to relate to God, how we're going to relate to other people. In fact, over the next couple of chapters of Exodus, chapter 21 through chapter 24, we're going to see how God is going to help the Israelites um, live under the Ten Commandments and apply them to their everyday life. Now, before we get into any of that, I need to give you a little bit of a forecast of where we are going with the rest of our study of the book of Exodus. Right now, we are about halfway through the, the book of Exodus. And I, and I want to say something about that. If you have read through the rest of the book of Exodus, then you already know that the remaining chapters of Exodus are very... Detailed. How many of you know that already? Okay, I see the hands. You're very. De- Some of you are probably wondering, what is Joe going to do with all these details? Well, how are we? How are we going to get through all these twenty chapters, toward nineteen chapters in, in front of us? Well, I, I'm I'm glad that you asked that question. Now, when I say, for those of you that don't have not read it, when I say that it's very detailed, I don't mean to suggest that it's difficult to understand or hard to read. That that's not what I mean. Um, what I am saying is that it's very detailed, and this is the part of Exodus where some people start to lose a little bit of steam with all of these details, Um, especially when a number of these details, just quite honestly, feel a little bit foreign to the walk with Jesus that we have today. So these chapters ahead, especially the next three chapters for sure, they contain line-by-line details about the laws that God is establishing for the Israelites. Let me give you a couple examples of these laws. Exodus 21 verse 12 reads this way. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Whoa, that's pretty strong language. Well, this, is, um, this is goes back to, to uh, uh, the, the tenth, one of the commandments, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. God is like, let me kind of expound on what I mean by that. So you have the 10 foundational laws, the 10 commandments, and then you have a whole bunch of laws that follow up behind of what this looks like practically lived out in everyday life. And so this is one of those. Here, let me give you another one. Exodus 22, verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is, who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. Because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, and I for I am compassionate. What is this talking about? Well, this is kind of an elaboration on one of the Ten Commandments, the one, Thou shalt not steal. If you take your neighbor's cloak, which is the most important article of clothing, you make sure you give it back. You don't keep it overnight because they need it. And if you keep it, you're stealing. Let me explain what I mean. Thou shalt not steal. Here's one more Exodus 23, verse 19. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What in the world? What in the world? Well, believe it or not, that actually relates back to the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't make for an hour. This is how the pagans, this is how the idol worshipers used to do. This is part of the ritualistic practice. God's like, have nothing to do with that. I don't want that to look like anything that, that we're doing. So there's that rule in there. But not only are these detailed laws in there, what follows them are very detailed instructions about a number of things. Very detailed instructions about building materials and what they're supposed to build, specifically the ark and the, and the tabernacle, why they're building it, how they're going to build it. There's uh, instructions about what they need to build as furniture, what materials they need. Very specific details and instructions. I mean, it gets so detailed that, that they even are told how to make the clothes for the priest and high priest, and it gets so detailed that we're talking practically about the thread color they're going to use to sew it all together. Now, don't get me wrong. I love this stuff. I love it. It's very important. Everything that we're going to read is God-breathed. It's the inspired Word of God. It's, it's the parts of the Bible that, that Paul talks about with Timothy in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is what? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what I'm saying is, it's all great, but I want you to rest easy. We are not going to spend the next 19 weeks together talking about all of these details. All right? Now, I thought there'd be an applaud or two or something, but I want you to rest easy. We're not going to spend the next 19 weeks, weeks going over inventory list, uh, material list, Um, how-to instructions on to build stuff and construction projects. We're not going to do this. But what we are going to do is we're going to take these final weeks of the book of Exodus that we're going to be in it, and and we're going to summarize some larger portions of Exodus together. And as we do that, we are going to pull out of that some principles and some truths that still very much apply to our walk with Christ today. So I would describe it like this. If the first 20 chapters of Exodus we have been walking through the text, then for the next 20, we're going to start to jog through the text, all right? That's how I describe it. We've been walking, and now we're going to jog together. And here's what I'm counting on you to do. I'm counting on you in your own personal time of Bible reading, which I hope everybody has a daily time where they open up their Bible and read it. I'm counting on you to read every day um, the rest of the book of Exodus. Take a little bit every day and start reading through these very, very, detailed rules, instructions, and list, and, and all of that, and you're gonna learn a lot, you're gonna, you're gonna grow a lot, you're gonna be blessed by that, and as you do that, here's what I'm gonna do over the next few weekends, I'm gonna do the best job I know how to do, to pull off as much meat from those scriptural bones that we're all reading together, and, and that we can digest it, so you read, I'll summarize, and together we're gonna grow in our walk with Jesus, does that make sense? So the next 19 chapters are gonna go lighting fast compared to the first 20. And so we're really just a few weeks away from being done with the book of Exodus. So God gave, here's where we're at right now. God gave the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai. That's where the Israelites are camped. So he gave these 10 commandments that Taylor preached about last week, but he didn't stop with those 10 commandments. It's not like God said, well, there you go. My work here is done. I'm sure you guys can figure out the rest as you go along with life. You got any questions, come up, have Moses give me a ring, he's got my number and I'll help you out. That's not, that's not what God did. No, the Israelites will end up spending 11 months camped here at Mount Sinai and God is gonna take those 11 months and he's going to to teach Moses all about the things that the Israelites are gonna need to know in order for them to apply the Ten Commandments to their daily lives so that they could grow into this holy nation that God had envisioned, this royal priesthood that God defined the relationship to become. And so they're going to spend some time. Now, during these 11 months camped at Mount Sinai, which is the duration of the rest of the book of Exodus, by the way, Moses is going to take a number of trips up and down the mountain to talk with God. And during one of those trips, he's going to stay up on the mountain so long that the people of Israel are like, where'd Moses go? Did he forget about us? Did he just leave us down here? Did he abandon us? And if you've already read Exodus chapter 32, which will be to that point very quickly, left to their own devices, what did they do? They did the thing that made sense to them what they had seen done in Egypt for generations. Let's gather up all of our gold, let's make a golden calf, and let's sing to it, worship it, and sacrifice to it. That's what they did. How in the world could they do that? When they're just so close to being freed from slavery and seeing the power of God makes no sense, but they're not ready yet to be that people that God designed. So they did that. We're also going to learn quite a bit um, in our study about them, them building this, this tent, this tabernacle. Um, and, and you're gonna see that in the rest of the book of Exodus, there is um, a lot of very detailed instructions about what they're supposed to build, how many curtains they're supposed to make, how many curtain holders they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to stretch it, how far. All We're gonna, we're gonna learn about this stuff, but it's very detailed. But they built this tent that traveled with them, and this is the tent that, that dwelled and, 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 they, and basically contained the very presence of God with his people. We're going to learn about the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's that thing that Indiana Jones found in the, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Did you know they found it in that movie? Yeah. But this is where in the Bible we learn about that. And there's very detailed de- de- descriptions about this This box, this beautiful box, this this box that in many ways contained the power of God. And as you read on through the plight of the Israelites, whenever they carried the ark, which you were not allowed to touch with your bare hands, you touch it, you die. And of course, somebody tried, because that's what we do. We're told not to do something. Somebody is gonna try. But whenever they carried this ark out in front of them in battle, they would just whoop anybody that came along. We're gonna learn about that. They're gonna build a lot of things um, there at Mount Sinai. They're gonna build furniture for the tabernacle. They're gonna put this ark together. And all of this stuff, these very detailed instructions, they, they all have to do with this relationship that God is building with this group of people. It's gonna be special, and all of these pieces have something to do with that. But let me just say this. This is the part of Exodus where it gets real tempting to ask this question. And the question is this, what's any of this got to do with me? These 19 chapters of all these details and stuff, what's it got to do with me? Regulations, rules, building materials, and I'm just trying to follow Jesus with all of my heart and live for him and get through each and every day, still a Christian. What's any of this got to do with me? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm sure every one of you is asking that question. Let me tell you what it's got to do with you. As you read through all of these laws, especially this week as you read through chapter 21 through 24 on your own, you're going to see that these laws reveal the character of God to us. In fact, one of the most important questions that we need to ask when we study the Bible, when we read it, one of the very most important questions is this, what does this text teach me about God? I hope that's a question you're always wondering about. What does this teach me about God? These detailed laws that you're gonna read about on your own, they teach us that God is just. They teach us that God is compassionate. Um, They teach us that God has expectations of people, that we be people that live our lives with humility and with justice and mercy that our character reflects the character of God. And let me tell you, when you read these laws, and you'll see it, that reveals to us the character of our God. Well, what else does reading these laws and rules say to us? Well, if you take a step back from the book of Exodus and you ask this question what is God ultimately doing? The first 20 chapters, what, what is God doing there? Well, God is building for himself a people. He's raising up a group. He's forming up a group of people who will do what? Who will display his glory. It's all over the first first 20 chapters. God says, I'm gonna do this and then you will know. Then you will see my power. Then you will know that I'm the one true God. He's raising up a a group of people that will display his glory. And these laws teach us about that. And as I think about it, is there anything more relevant to us today than glorifying the God in every, our God in everything that we do? Is there anything more important than that? Than glorifying our Lord, reflecting his glory in our daily walk with Jesus. I, I can't think of anything more important than that. What these laws also do is they communicate through the generations and through the ages some timeless principles about what God expects from his people. That God has expectations of how we interact with one another, how we live our daily lives that reflect who he is. So I would say these laws have a lot to teach us, but we're going to avoid two mistakes that people often make when they are reading the laws, okay? We're not going to make these mistakes, but I want to point them out to you. And the first mistake when you read the rest of the book of Exodus, some people make, is to read it all and to make this conclusion. They've got nothing to do with me, so I'm going to throw them out and dismiss them. That's a mistake. It would be a mistake to dismiss the next 19 chapters of Exodus as if, hey, it doesn't, doesn't apply to me. That would be a mistake. The second mistake that we're not going to make, and we're going to avoid, but some people do make it, it, is this. I'm gonna read all of these laws, and I'm going to adopt them to my life today exactly as they are written. That would be a mistake as well. But there are people who do that. Let me give you a little history on what this is. These rules, these laws, they were written specifically to the Israelites who had just a few months earlier escaped to their freedom from slavery. They were slaves for generation. And here they are now, out in the wilderness, and God gives them some rules to live by. These rules, these laws, were not written to the church today, us Christians living in Bella Vista, Arkansas, in 2023. They weren't written to us. But as you examine them, you are going to see that even though these laws were written to the Israelites all those years ago, they do deal with many contemporary issues that the church today is confronted with. And they do speak some truth into these subjects. So, for example, you read through the laws, you're gonna see they're gonna talk about the death penalty. They're gonna talk about slavery. They're gonna address issues with premarital sex. They're gonna talk about caring for orphans and widows. It's gonna have a lot to say about lawsuits, fist fights, property disputes, um, taking care of the poor, loving your enemies. And more and more, all of these are issues the church deals with today. They weren't written to us, but it'd be a huge mistake to throw them out because they have a lot to teach us. Specifically, they teach us how God sees the world. And so friends, you remember a couple weeks ago when I said, when I read the Bible, I'm always looking for those places that I can say, yeah, that's how God sees it. Because if God sees something a certain way, that's how I wanna see it too. That's how I read the Bible. Don't you wanna have the same point of view as God? And these laws give us God's point of view on many things. So they weren't written to us. They were written to the Israelites. But many of these laws are also repeated in the New Testament. In fact, did you know that nine of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament? The only one that's not repeated is the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. And there's other teaching in the New Testament about why that's, that's the way it is. So, nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament. Now, here's just a general rule of thumb as you study the Bible. If there is a law or command in the Old Testament that is repeated in the New Testament, then we as Christians are obligated to obey it. Let me say that one more time. If something is stated in the Old Testament and it's repeated in the New Testament to the church, we as Christians are obligated to obey. And many of the laws and the heart behind the law are also repeated. In the New Testament, so we must pay close attention to what the Word of God is telling us. So, yeah, they were written long ago to the Israelites, but they do continue to teach us a lot about loving the Lord and glorifying Him. You're gonna read in the law that there's a lot of language about loving God and a lot of language about loving your neighbor. Where in the world have we heard that before? You know, as I recall, I think Jesus said something like that, didn't he? If you got your Bibles, flip over the New Testament with me for about three minutes. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 22, and I want to show you something because this is actually a very important thing for you to have right in front of you in relation to this conversation that we're having with the law in the Old Testament. Jesus had got confronted one day. He, he was doing a lot of his teaching and miracle working and all that, and he got confronted by a what the Bible says, an expert in the law. Did you know they had those back then? Lawyers, people who examined all the law and they made sure that, that, that people were following it to the law and they would take this to the courthouses and they would, they would parse out the law, you know. Jesus gets confronted one day by an expert in what would become over 600 laws in the Old Testament. So they asked Jesus a question. Let's read it together real quickly. Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, Pharisees, these, and the Pharisees got together, the religious leaders of the day. One of them, among them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these Two commandments. So by the time that Jesus comes onto the scene, the law had been given at Sinai and the, the Israelites had taken the promise and gone through all the stuff in the Old Testament. Jesus comes onto the scene, and by this point, the religious leaders are like, You tell us which one's the most important. Why did he ask that question? Because they had created a ranking system. They'd taken every law that they knew and they ranked them from top to bottom. What are the biggies? What are the ones that you cannot break? What are the laws that are absolute violations? And then as we go down the line, which are the ones that um, really aren't that big a deal? Here's the thou shalt not kill. And way down there is the, yeah, little white lies. Okay, are you with me? So they said, Jesus, we've ranked them. Which one's the most important? And Jesus gives the answer of all answers. He says, you guys have missed the boat on what the law was all about The law is all about, you wanna boil it all down to what God's trying to do? He's saying this, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You can boil it down to those two things. And he looks at him, he's like, you've missed the boat, you've missed the heart of what this is all about. So you take all these rules that we learn about in Exodus, And you add the ones from Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like I said, you get about 600 plus of these things. And Jesus, like, I'll boil it down for you: love God, love your neighbor. So here's where we here's where we are at today as Christians, and why this matters today as Christians. We live under the new covenant. All of these laws, these rules, are under what's called the old covenant. Okay, Um, there was an agreement. God defined the relationship that we call the old covenant, built on the sacrificial system and all these rules. When Jesus came, he fulfilled that old covenant and he brought in what we call the new covenant. And what we do as Christians today who live under the new covenant is we look back at all these rules and these regulations and these real life examples for the Israelites and we draw out of them principles that still very much apply today under the new covenant. We have an obligation as followers of Jesus to view these these principles that we pull out of this in light of the New Testament teaching. So just like the Israelites look to the 10 commandments and try to apply them to their lives, we too look at God's word and we try to apply it foundationally into our lives as well. And so we today look at that back then and we make responsible, Christ-centered, new covenant application to it. That's that's what we do. So with our few minutes we have left together today, I'd like to do that. I would like to look at a couple of these laws in the Old Testament, and I'd like for us today to make um, responsible, Christ centered new covenant application to them. So let's start. Exodus 21, I wanna read a few verses starting in verse two and I wanna read Old Testament rules and see what they apply to our New Testament lives. You ready? If you buy a Hebrew servant and some of your eyebrows just went up, what? <laughs> what in the world? Let's start over. This is in the Bible, y'all. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free... Then the master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an owl. Then he will be a servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. All right. Explain that one to your buddies at work over the lunch table, all right? (laughs) What in the world? What are we talking about here? Well, let me help kind of rein this in just a little bit and clarify some things. Let me start with the big question. Is this actually saying that God approves of slavery? Buying and selling of people? Is that what this is saying? The first thing you gotta understand when the word slavery and servant and selling and stuff, we are not talking and we should not understand this as like slavery we think about in our very tainted American past. We're not talking about the same thing, and I'm gonna explain why that is in a minute. It's also, what we're reading about here in in Exodus is not the same thing that also exists in the dark underbelly of our world that involves um, human trafficking and sexual exploitation. We're not talking about that either. And also, I'll just propose a question. It's not asked in the Bible, but Joe Williams is asking it. Does it make a lot of sense for God to free a bunch of slaves in his name to turn around and empower them to enslave other people? Just a question that should hang over this conversation. Slavery here among the Israelites is not like we think of slavery. I want you to think about it as like employer and employee times ten. We're talking about somebody who pledges himself, sells himself to somebody saying, you have a business, you have a farm, and for the next six years, I'm gonna sell myself into your service. I'm gonna be the best employee you've ever had. I'm gonna work hard for you. I'm gonna do everything you need me to do. You're gonna care for me. You're gonna provide for me. He might even get a wife out of the deal, have some children, and then after six years, he's supposed to go free. Think of it kind of like that. That's really what it is. There's a lot of reasons why somebody back in this day would would sell themselves into that kind of servanthood. There's job security, there's housing, there's food, there's room and board. There's a lot of reasons why somebody would do that. But this is not the same thing as slavery like we think about it. And not only that, when you read the law, why did God spell it out like this? God was putting boundaries around what somebody could do. And the boundaries are temporary. You have to let him go free you can't hold on to him forever. You know, this isn't against his will. This is a voluntary thing that somebody is doing. And there's also rules so that this kind of relationship never becomes abusive or oppressive. Let me show you. If you jump down a few verses, Exodus 21 26, it says an owner who hits a the male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. So those guys have rights. Where in the world do slaves have rights? They don't. And an owner who knocks out a tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. There's a lot of things we could say about this. And this is actually a much larger subject than what we're dealing with here in Exodus. The Bible is not silent on this. But I will say this, in Exodus and the law, what this relates to is about devotion, it's about honest living, it's about respect and keeping families together. And this is a big difference between the history of slavery in this world when families are brutally torn apart and they are enslaved against their will, stripped from their homeland and and abused in every way. So this is not the same thing. God's putting boundaries around it. So what's the bottom line? even though somebody might sell themselves to their master's service, God is ensuring with his law that even if this type of relationship is entered into, that person never once is to be treated like a slave. That's the heart of this thing. So we ask, what is the principle of this for us as New Testament believers? Well, it's this, that you and I are to treat Anybody we come into contact with, regardless of the context, whether it's a family member or it's a neighbor or it's a coworker or it's your employer or whatever, you're going to treat them well because how we treat one another matters greatly to God. That is the principle here. I don't know if you caught this when we were reading it, but I want to show you something back in verse 5 of chapter 21. It says this. If the servant declares, I love my master, where in slavery does anybody ever say that? But if he declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not wanna go free, then his master must take him before the judges. So there's rules here, okay, regulations. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost. And literally, he's gonna take him to a doorpost. He's gonna stretch his ear out like this. And he's gonna take a spike and he's gonna go whack right through the ear. And he's going to mark him, which says that guy now has on full voluntary offer to pledge his devotion to working in this guy's business for the rest of his life, keep his family together. And, and, and I started to think about that. And I wondered, is there some kind of illustration happening here that relates back to my walk with Jesus today? And, and it kind of hit me. Haven't we also as servants and slaves of Christ, bonded ourselves to him forever? Haven't when we believed, aren't we also marked, I belong to this guy, my very generous, my very sacrificial master, I want to be a slave to him, Jesus. If you jump into the New Testament, because we're always looking for New Testament counterparts to Old Testament laws, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here's this principle, here's where we're going. Who being the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When it comes to Jesus, our master, who also lowered himself to become a servant, when it comes to him, you and I should gladly say, because I adore you, Lord, I am yours forever. Here's my ear. You got me. All of me. There's a huge principle that is woven through the pages of Exodus throughout all of these laws, and this has been a a principle for all time, and it's this, people matter to God. You cannot read these laws without coming to that conclusion. People matter to God, and you can see that very clearly when we're reading their laws about capital punishment, or fighting or kidnapping or cursing your parents or injuring somebody else or or showing compassion to a foreigner or or loving the widow or the orphan, um, respecting the poor, caring for them, honoring your leaders, loving your enemies. We see this principle woven through here. People matter to God. And because people matter to God, people should matter to God's family. Look at Exodus chapter 21 Verse 22, I wanna show you a few of these laws that so clearly explain how God sees people and what matters to him. Exodus 21, 22 says this. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. I want you to notice something in this law. Did you notice that God... Considered both the mother and the child? Did you notice in this law that the fetus was treated as a person? A life for a life? What's the principle for us today? The principle is that all people, whether they are born or unborn, matter to God. And because the born and unborn matter to God, they should matter to us, don't you think? Absolutely. Let me show you another one. Exodus 21, verse 16. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. I read that and I ask this question. Is this still a problem today? You better believe it. I have read that kidnapping and trafficking Right now, building this nation of slaves right now is the second largest, fastest growing international crime in the world. Right now, if my numbers are accurate, there's about 27 million kidnapped slaves all around the world. There's over 2 million children right now who have been kidnapped and are forced to work in the sex trafficking industry. 2 million. People matter to God. And I promise you, friends, God's eye notices all this because nothing escapes God's notice. There will be a reckoning of this one day, I promise you that. Now, it may happen the day that Jesus comes again, and and, and if he waits till the end of time, I promise you, there will be a reckoning for violating God's deep concern for people. He will not let it stand forever. People matter to God. You know what else matters to God? Sexual purity and a whole host of other things. Exodus chapter 22, verse 16, reads this. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins." These two verses right here um, relate specifically to premarital sex. And they point back to the seventh commandment. This is not rape. Some people wonder if this is rape. It's definitely heavy handed on the male who did something wrong by seducing her, but it is mutual consent. There's a different word for rape and there's a different law already written about if a man rapes a woman and the penalty is clearly stated. If a man rapes a woman, he is going to die for that crime in God's economy under the law. But this, however, refers to sex outside of marriage and this law shows us that anyone who committed this sin in God's eyes have violated something of great worth, something of great value to God, something that is very special. And that very special thing in God's eyes is that woman's virginity. And the way God sees it, the way the law is written is that that is such a blatant disregard of her worth that if a man did this and he took what didn't belong to him, that he had a responsibility from that point forward to provide and care for her because of what he took from her. And he has to marry her. But if the father says, I'm not letting my daughter marry you, you're a loser. You know, which no father has ever said that to any guy ever. So this is very hypothetical. But if the father says, you're a loser, I'm not giving my daughter to you. He still has to pay for it. He still owes money. Now this isn't a day in a context Where, you know, guys that wanted to get married had to pay money to do that. So there's another number of things happening here with this law. But the the bottom line is, and what the overlying principle here, is that there is consequences for premarital sex. And those consequences are huge. And the law lays down... Some principles for us, namely this. You cannot run around, even as Christians today, you cannot run around sleeping with whoever you want to sleep with and not face consequences for that behavior. And that is very true to this day. There is a framework for which God created this kind of intimacy. It is called marriage. And this is the framework that the New Testament fully expounds upon. And this is both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's design is for a man to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two of them, in God's perfect world, two virgins come together and cleave to one another, become one flesh. And that is the only context in the Bible that God ever shines his light down of holiness on that level of intimacy. Outside of it, huge consequences. This is the heart of the, the law. Now, let me just say this. We don't live in an era anymore where, where, where women in marriage are exchanged as property. We don't talk about things like the price of her virginity and the price of a bride. Nobody, at least I didn't have to, nobody pays their father, the girl's father, for her. She's not a possession. I'm grateful that we have moved on from that way of thinking. But there is a great value principle formed here under the banner of God's love that for people to come together in marriage and to that level of intimacy, with that level of purity, make sure the marriage bed stays pure, and that is a reflection of your personal holiness to God. So what's the New Testament equivalent to this teaching? It's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. What's it say? Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So there's a lot of laws like this. There's a lot of laws that are very self-explanatory. They don't need a lot of uh, elaboration. And they all have, many of them have New Testament counterparts. Let me list off just a couple real quick. Exodus 22, verse 22. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Very straightforward. Is there a New Testament counterpart? You better believe it. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that our God and Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Do you hear the heart of God shining through? What does he want? What's his character reflect? What does he want from Christians? Let's go back to the Old Testament. Exodus 22, verse 29. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats, it was a very clear, it was actually written out. This is what you do, this is what you tithe, this is what you give, this is what God honors, all that. What's the New Testament equivalent? Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse six. This is for the church. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Back to the Old Testament law. Exodus 23, verse 1. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being malicious, a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony to a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. The New Testament says this, Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So, like I was saying, many of the laws are repeated in the New Testament, and if they're repeated in the New Testament, we are obligated to obey them. Now, some of you want to do a deeper dive into this, and I'm going to tell you how to do it and what to do. Some of you are like, I want to learn a lot more about this, and some of you are like, can we move on, please? I get it. So, for those of you that want to take a deeper dive, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. This week, read chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24, and you're going to come across a long list of these kind of rules. Take this week to to figure out where these laws are also repeated in the New Testament. What is the New Testament equivalent to this Old Testament rule? And when you do that, you're going to learn a lot. Your eyes are going to be open. Your walk with Jesus will get better. There are going to be some things you're going to learn. You're going to I didn't know that. And and it's going to fill in the picture better than what you thought you already had. So kind of as we wrap this up. These laws demonstrated how Israel was supposed to live out the Ten Commandments. And they just didn't do a very good job at it. In fact, you keep reading through the rest of the Old Testament, you know they had a really hard time obeying this law. In fact, just a couple chapters ahead, they're going to break it completely by building the golden calf and worshiping it. In fact, truth be known, no one, not ever, who has lived on this planet has ever been able to keep these rules? Well, there was one. Of everybody in the whole world, one person actually lived out every one of these laws perfectly. And of course, we know him as Jesus Christ. Jesus lived this life and he lived it so perfectly he absolutely had no sin. He lived a life that we could not live and he died the death that we should have died. So you look at all these rules and you look at all the penalties and the consequences for that. Nobody, not one person has ever been able to do it. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came and he says, "I'll do it." And you know what else I'll do? Because nobody else can. I will take every penalty that God ever listed for every law that was ever broken. I will become that Passover lamb. You guys remember when you sacrificed the Passover lamb and you spread its blood over the doorpost and the death angel passed over you, you were literally saved by the blood of the lamb, guess what I'm gonna do? I am gonna be that perfect lamb. I am gonna sacrifice myself. I will die the death of a lawbreaker. So you don't have to. And I will shed my blood and you'll be covered by it and you can be saved. Jesus was the only one who was ever able to live this world and not be a lawbreaker. And because he did that for each of us, we now live under the new covenant. So all of these laws are old covenant. Jesus fulfilled the law when he came and died and then God created a brand new agreement He had a brand new DTR with the world through Jesus. This is how we are now gonna define our relationship. This is what was. Jesus paid the ultimate price for sin. He bridged the separation. And now this is what our relationship looks like. And guess what? Boil it all down for you. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's how I want you to live. Right like that. That's the heart of the matter. Love me and love others. Because Jesus saved us lawbreakers now because under the new covenant, we also have this new part of our relation with God. We actually now have the Lord living in us, the Holy Spirit. Under the old covenant, they had to build a temple, a tabernacle and a temple and this is where they had to go make their sacrifices. This is where God's presence was. But you know what? Now that Jesus came and bridged the gap between man and God, reconciled man and God back together, the Lord now takes up his dwelling in us. That's why the Bible says that your bodies are Temples of the Holy Spirit, where God now dwells. So we are new covenant believers who can learn a whole lot about living for Jesus from the old covenant law. Tony Merida is a pastor up in North Carolina, and I was reading a book that he wrote about the Exodus, and and um, he actually did a summary in that book about, he took all the laws of the Old Testament and he wrote a summary. Here's seven ways a New Testament Christian can live out the Old Testament law. And I thought, man, this is really good. This is really better than what I could come up with. So I'm gonna give him credit for this and I'm gonna share what he wrote because it's just that good. Again, he took all the Old Testament law and he broke it down into seven ways a New Testament Christian can live it out. It captures the heart of it. Let me go through it quickly and we'll be done. He says, concerning worship, Because of Jesus, we can now worship him in spirit and truth anywhere around the world. See, there's a lot of rules and regulations and laws about worship, but now because of Jesus, this new covenant, we can worship God anywhere, spirit and truth. Concerning the workplace, all of our work is to be done as an act of worship to the Lord. Everything we do. Concerning behaviors. God's people should demonstrate an ethic that is characterized by integrity and sacrificial love. That's the heart of what God's trying to say. Concerning restitution, we should seek to make all things right and be generous since Jesus has changed our selfish hearts. Concerning holiness, because God has given us his spirit, let us bear the fruit of the spirit and not gratify the desire of the flesh. Concerning the vulnerable in our world. We should desire to care for those who are weak and vulnerable because God cared for us when we were the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the poor. Concerning Sabbath and festivals, which we didn't even talk about today. We should remember God's grace by worshiping him, obeying his word, resting in his promises, and enjoying the Lord's Supper. So, friends, as we wrap up here today, there's this thing that rings loud and clear as I study the Old Testament. You and I are no better than anybody else. And the Israelites had a hard time living up under this law. You and I today have a hard time not sinning. That, that there is, for us, this one common denominator that spreads throughout all time. We're all lawbreakers, we're all sinners, and we're all in need of somebody to fix it. The Israelites needed it, we need it, and Jesus did it. So what is required of us beyond what we've talked about? Here's what the Lord wants from each and every one of us, the foundational level of this agreement. God wants us to obviously love God and love others. That's how our behavior, that's how we act. But foundationally, what does God want us to do? Maybe some of you are in this room today, and you're like, I don't know what I believe about in this stuff. I'm not sure what my next step is. I can tell you what it is. God wants you to believe it. God wants you to believe that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. This is the foundation of our faith. We believe. What do people do who believe it? They repent of their sins. They have a change of heart about the way they live. I changed my mind about my behavior. I'm all in with you now, God. I believe it. I repent of my sins. I'm going to confess Jesus as my leader. Jesus said, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Jesus is my leader. I don't care who knows it. I'll tell the whole world. I believe, repent of my sins, make Jesus my leader. I'm going to unite with him in baptism. I'm going to go down the waters and I'm going to very much symbolically die to myself under that water, which is my grave. And I'm going to be raised to new life in Jesus, just like we saw at the beginning of our service. I die to myself. And I raised to walk in a new life with the Lord. I believe, repent of my sins, confess Christ as Lord, unite with him in baptism, following Jesus' footsteps. And I'm going to live for him for the best of my abilities under his grace, knowing that no matter what I've done in my life, he has forgiven me. He's forgiven me from the time I stole a piece of bubble gum from the store to the most rated R of sins that we're so embarrassed by today. He's washed me clean, sins are forgiven, and I live under God's grace. I'm a new creation in him, and I'm going to live for him forever. And one day, we're going to see the skies part, and Jesus is going to come, and we're going to be caught up with him in the clouds at the end and be ushered into heaven forever. But if the Lord takes his time, you and, all, you and I will all depart from this world like everybody else before us. We will die, and then we will be raised up with Jesus and be with him anyway. So friends, he who has an ear to hear, even one that's been nailed to a doorpost and marked with Jesus, let him hear. Let me pray for you. Lord, I'm just so grateful and everybody in this room is grateful that you saved us. You've saved us from every sin that we've ever done and you've brought us into reconciliation with God. You've reconciled man to God together and we are so grateful because we are lawbreakers and we deserved every penalty that came with it. But Lord, you took our place. You became our substitute. You handled the problem. And so now we walk in faith and we believe and we're new. So Lord, we give you praise for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.